Dad, we are starting the new series, Our Father. I'm so excited for all that God the Father has for us as we journey through this series. And um, the, the series really is, is looking at um, how Jesus revealed God to be Father. And uh, we're, we're kicking off uh, initially in something called the Lord's Prayer, which some of you will be familiar with. It's a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And um, it's, it's found in, in something called the Sermon on the Mount. So it's a, a talk on a mountainside, basically. And um, the, the, uh, there's lots of different things that Jesus covers in this talk, the Sermon on the Mount. But the undercurrent of all of them is because this is what your father's like. So it's be like this because this is what your father's like. Do this because this is what your father's like. So we're going to be looking at how Jesus reveals the father and the bit that we start off with tonight, and the title of the series, Our Father, actually some have said that that is a summary of the entire gospel, just in one term, Our Father. It's an intimate yet respectful term that sums up the entire gospel. So let me just read to you a little bit of it tonight, just so you know that I'm not making it up. And um, so we're in, in Matthew chapter 6. Uh, Matthew was a tax collector. Um, all of his people hated him because he was in collusion with the Roman authorities. Uh, he was a Jew, and his, his Jewish brothers and sisters didn't like what he was doing at all. Uh, but he encountered Jesus, and his life totally changed. And he wrote an account of Jesus' life, and this is the sixth chapter of it. And the context is that Jesus is talking about prayer, and he's just, just done Jesus Christ, how not to pray. So don't babble, don't go on too long, don't use long words. And he says, because your father knows what you need before you even ask him. And hey, we could do a whole sermon on that, couldn't we? That's such a, a term packed with such beautiful goodness. Um, but he, he says this, and this, the words will come up on the screen. He says, pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We'll explain that word hallowed as we come on to it. It's a bit of a funny word, isn't it? But I suppose the first question that some may be asking is, well, why do we want to do a series on our Father? And um, I'm going to give you three reasons. And the first one is this, that doing a series on our Father picks up on Jesus' priority. You see, in the Old Testament, that is everything pre-Jesus coming to earth, um, the, the idea of God as Father is used only 15 times, yeah? But come the New Testament, so everything Jesus onwards, in the four accounts of Jesus' life alone, the term is used 165 times, yeah? So it's a big priority of Jesus. It actually was Jesus' most common way of referring to God. And so uh, here in, in the Sermon on the Mount, We've hardly heard anything yet from Jesus in, in this account of his life. He said a couple of lines, but this is his first major sermon. And as I've said, the, the undercurrent of all of what he's saying is this is what your father is like. It's a huge part of what he came to reveal. That God is not just like a father, but that he is your father for those who believe. And he's not just any father, but here's the good news. He is your good, loving, perfect father. That is good news for us. We can live in that a while. One of the scholars called uh, J.I. Paco wrote lots of books. He put it a little bit like this. Well, he put it exactly like this. I'm quoting it. <laughs> not, uh, whoops. He said, if you want to know how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought 
of having God as his father. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the Old Testament, everything distinctively Christian, as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the fatherhood of God. So we're reflecting Jesus' priority. The second thing is that when we know that God is our good, loving, perfect, heavenly Father, then it changes the way that we see ourselves and even our expectations and our motives. You see, if I get that God, my Father, is for me and is willing and is able, then I will believe him for more things. If I get that God the Father sent his Son to earth, to die in my place for the mess that, I've be- that my life had become so that I could become a child of God forever and nothing could ever change that, then I know that I can face life's challenges. And I, even at the end of the most horrific of situations, I can still know that my Father rules the heavens. If I know that Jesus came so that I could know the Father and be forever adopted into his family, then whatever weakness or fear or even violation I see in or of my life, I know that it's covered by his decision to love me forever. It even changes your prayer life when you know God as Father. Because when you know that you're a child who is assured and provided for by your heavenly Father, rather than a slave who's trying to prove himself to his master, then prayer no longer becomes about trying to overcome God's reluctance, but about laying hold of his willingness. That's how one of the church fathers put it. Now, my wife and I saw this a little bit a couple of months back, that when we see God as Father, it changes our expectations. We have a little girl who's uh, eight months old. Uh, She was six months at the time, and she wasn't sleeping very well at all. And uh, we were tired and worn out and stressed, and our sleep-induced prayers were sort of patchy to God. But just as, as we prayed, and he saw our hearts just trying to cry out to him, a, a fresh revelation came to us that God is a good, loving, heavenly, perfect Father. And he is willing, and he is able. And Lizzie was waking up at the time, maybe sort of four or five times a night, something like that. We would have settled for just a bit less. We would have settled for one wake-up a night. I mean, we could handle that. And so we had this funny kind of prayer negotiation thing going on and saying, God, we know that you can get her through, but if one is is all that you're going to give for now, or we know you can get her through, but, you know, if she can't quite manage that, if you can't quite make it happen, do you know, just as his goodness came to us, we started to pray bigger prayers. God, you are sovereign. As much as there's all sorts of sleep associations and medicine that goes into it and all this sort of thing, God, you are sovereign. Please, God, get her through. And do you know what happens? She started sleeping through the night. Praise God. (laughs) Praise God. And I, I know there's lots of different factors involved in that, but God's timing is perfect, isn't it? And he chose to reveal his father's heart to us in that moment. The third reason is this, that as we understand what God the Father is like, then we fight the epidemic of fatherlessness in our nation. It's estimated that 80% of prisoners in UK prisoners come from homes where there is no dad. It's estimated that there is over 250 areas in England alone that are known as dad deserts. That is areas where houses with no dad are in the majority. 
it's thought that there's over one million children growing up in the UK who have no dad involvement in their life. That's about a tenth of all children. And that's just the absent fathers, isn't it? I mean, even with the, the present fathers, those who are there in the home, we've all heard or maybe even experienced stories of neglect in some way. From severe things like outright abuse down to less severe but still just as painful stuff like dads who just didn't know how to love. And, and we find that actually that, that so often is the root of many, many pastoral situations. When we're praying with people, so often I've found that actually there's, there's a person who didn't have the love of their father as they should have done. And they really, really wanted it. So they tried to earn it. They tried to perform really well for their dad. And they take that attitude and project it onto God. And so when you use the phrase, God the Father, for some of you, that will have an incredibly positive association. Some of you, that will have no association at all. You didn't ever know your dad. And for some of you, that will have a terrifying association. Some kind of monster you couldn't get away from. And, and if that is you, I, I just want to say to you tonight that you're not alone. You're not alone. We're here with you as a community to support and walk with you through the pain of it. But actually, my prayer for you as we go through this series is that God, your heavenly, good, loving, perfect Father, will reveal himself afresh to you and will reveal that he is also your healer and he is also the reconciler and he is also the one in whom you can find the strength to forgive and to move forward. You're not alone. But I just want to say that God the Father always goes beyond any experience of fatherhood. See, he always takes fatherhood to new depths. So whether you're coming from a place of, of brokenness or a place of having a really great dad, God the Father always goes beyond. He always does, does immeasurably more than we could ever ask or think. There's always more to him. We've been singing about it tonight. We'll never reach the depths of everything that he is. We'll spend eternity plumbing the depths of how beautiful and wonderful and glorious he is. And it applies to God the Father as our Father. He defines fatherhood. Our dads don't define him. So let's, let's uh, dig into this then a little bit. I want to take a look at three characteristics of what God the Father is like. And the first one is this, that he delights intimately in us. He delights intimately. Delight in intimacy. It's what hundreds of thousands of people in our city center every weekend, nighttime economy, are looking for, isn't it? To be delighted in and to be intimate with someone. But let me explain how this applies, how God delights in you and is close to you. You see, God is three persons, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And forever, those three persons have delighted in one another. So for all eternity, the Father has delighted in the Son, Jesus Christ. And forever, it has been God's plan that the Son would come to earth to reveal what God is like, to make a way for us to know God. And so when Jesus came to earth 
and beat death and conquered the sin and the mess of the world and defeated Satan, the enemy of the world, and won us as a people. He became our representative. He did it for us. He did it on our behalf. Jesus Christ is our representative. He's our advocate before the Father. He's our mediator between us and the Father. And so because he is our representative, the Bible says that we are in Christ. That's a really common term that the Bible uses. And the picture, if you like, is of a mother who is with her children. You've, I'm sure you've all seen it. The rain is coming down, so, um, so much rain happening. And the mother takes a cloak and she shields it around her children in Christ. That's what Jesus has done. He's taken his perfect record, given it to us, taken our mess on himself, and he's extended his cloak around us so that we are in Christ. And so when the Father now looks on us, he sees us in the Son. The way that he looks at Jesus is the way he sees you. Utter delight. Utter delight. So what is the Father's reaction when he looks at you through the finished work of Jesus? It's delight. What if you have had a bad week? What if you've messed up? What if you've done something you shouldn't? It's still delight. What if you're thinking, how does he see me right now? It's delight. He delights in you. Delight, delight, delight. How do I know? Because he delights in his son. So he delights in you because you are in the sun. Psalm 45 says that he's enthralled by your beauty. Deuteronomy 32 says, if I can find it in my notes, that you are the apple of his eye. And Ephesians 2 says that you are his workmanship. Delight, delight, delight. Do you know, it's in the heart of the father to love his children. It's the Father's heart to love his children. I've, I've seen it a, a little bit with Lizzie in, in the last few months. Here she is. There you go. Yeah. You'll see why I want this picture up. So why I'm so gushing about her. You see, when, when, when I saw Lizzie for the first time, I honestly thought that she was the most beautiful baby I'd ever seen. And I still do. And I am utterly captivated by her. She will sit there and blow her raspberries for 10 minutes. And I love it. Today, she tried to roll through a wall. <laughs> I don't blame her. No one's told her you can't do it. I love it. Sometimes in the morning, I, I sit down and I'm reading my Bible. And she's there. And she's so terribly distracting. <laughs> she's, she's learned one sound so far. It's the sound da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Do you know what? It melts my heart. And she's not, I don't think she even knows that she's referring to me. It's just a sound that she's learnt. I'm absolutely besotted with her. I would do anything for her. And the reason that I'm gushing about her to you tonight is because that is how the Father sees you. That is how the Father sees you. He would testify to others about you. He would big up who you are. He would delight in what he has made in you, in the beauty that you have, in the wonderful gifts that you have, in the person that he has made you, because you are his workmanship. He delights in you. 
I want you to just take a moment internally to tell your own soul, the Father delights in me. The Father delights in me. But, you know, it doesn't stop there because it's not just delight, but it's intimacy too. Now, I delight in lots of things that I am not intimate with. I delight in steak, and I know very little about cows or the process of steak coming through, and only a little bit about the cooking process. I delight in the great outdoors, but I know next to nothing about geography. But he delights in you, and he's intimate with you. Because when Jesus taught us to pray using this expression, our Father, in his original Aramaic language, that was one word. It was the word Abba. You might have come across it before. Let me just unpack what that term meant. You see, the term Abba, used in the Aramaic language, it has the joy of a little child who sees their father and says, Daddy! It's got the childlikeness, but not the childishness of that. The Bible calls us to be like children, but not to be childish. For that, it conveys complete love and trust. Daddy, come and entertain me. Come and play with me. You can do anything. I love you. I trust you. It's got the joy of that. But it's also got immense respect and reverence attached to it. And we'll, we'll look at that a little bit later. Not losing the fact that it is such an intimate term. You see, it's quite hard for our culture to get this because the terms that we have for dads are either a bit more sort of childlike, sort of daddy, papa, you know, that kind of thing, or they're incredibly reverent and respectful. Sir, father. This is both, both ants. He delights in you. You see, we were designed to have intimacy with our father. We were made for intimacy. I want to tell you about a film that um, is a wonderful film because both my wife and I, Emma, have agreed that we both like it. And um, that, that is brilliant. Um, she didn't go for Taken, but uh, there you go, if you've seen that. Um, the film is called August Rush. I've just realized I'm keeping you in suspense. How many have heard of August Rush? Yeah? Well, for those of you that haven't, August Rush is about an orphan who was separated from his parents at birth, and his, his name comes to be August. And uh, his parents were both very, very gifted musicians. And so it tells the story of how music, he longs to know them and to try and seek them out, to try and find them. And there's huge symbolism uh, within the film about the affection of God surpassing all else. You see, it's, it's got the examples of, of bad father figures to, to set against the underlying message of, of a good heavenly father. It's got huge hints in it that something more than what we can see is the answer to our longings for affection. It's even got one of his orphan friends singing a song that has the lyrics, Father, hear me when I call your name. I need you to answer me now. Father, here I am, weak in your sight. Can you rescue me now? It's a cry for intimacy. But perhaps the most poignant moment of the whole film is where little boy August, who must be about 10 years old or something like that, he sits on some steps outside with this adult figure who asks him, he says, August, shut your eyes and just imagine, 
in the whole world, what is it that you want to be? And August is this incredibly talented musician. And you're thinking he's going to say something like, I want to write great symphonies. I want to take musical theory to, to new depths. What in the whole world do you want to be? He says, found. I want to be found. See, we were made for intimacy. That's why it makes sense when you see a child secure in their father's arms or their mother's arms. That's why it's hurtful when that doesn't happen. It's not how it's meant to be. If that was your experience and you didn't get that from your parents, that's not how it was meant to be. Our Heavenly Father goes beyond it all. He delights in us intimately. But do you know when you delight in something or someone, and when you're intimate with them, that leads to one thing. It leads to affirmation. When you delight in something and you're close to it, you just want to affirm it. You just want to say good things about it. You just want to tell people how great that thing is. And I found this this week. Because last weekend, my wife and I were away at a family wedding. And we had a great time. And so reality hit again Monday morning. I'm back in the office. And Emma was at home with Lizzie. And um, I just really missed her. This is Monday morning. And I thought, I'll send her a text just to tell her that I love her and I miss her. And um, some of you have seen a Facebook status, which is why you're laughing. You can't do that. That's cheeky. I sent this text to Emma. I was really proud of myself. I thought I shall sit back and just enjoy my affirming of her. And um, I looked back up and uh, seeing the last message I sent to Emma was our group text, which I often send to her uh, just for vetting, basically. And um, I looked a little further up the screen to see um, Emma's name followed by a number that was much larger than the one person that I'd intended to receive this message. And what I'd actually done was told our entire home group that I loved them and I missed them and sent them lots of kisses. <laughs> you should have seen the response. <laughs> I was furiously trying to retype, being like, no, no, that was a problem. Don't, uh, not a problem, a, a mistake, sorry. And my phone wouldn't go fast enough. And all these, uh, these humorous responses come in. Delight plus intimacy leads to affirmation. And you see it at Jesus' baptism. Just, just a couple of chapters before the one we looked at, Matthew 6. And what we see there, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he is baptized, he goes down under the water, baptized by John the Baptist, in order to identify with us, in order to identify with the human race amidst all its mess. And as he comes up out of the water, a voice from heaven is heard affirming him, saying, this is my son, whom I love. In him, I am well pleased. And it's glorious, wonderful picture of how the father has delighted in the son for all eternity. But do you know what is incredible too? Is that that is not just a one-time, one-moment thing, but actually we are now in Christ. And how he sees Jesus is how he sees us. And so it continues through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And Jesus ascends into heaven. And then together, the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. And you see it in Acts chapter 2, group of uh, Jesus' followers. The Holy Spirit falls upon them. 
and they begin to tell other people about him. They write letters about what's going on. And what do they say in those letters that the Spirit does? He connects with our hearts, our heart to the Father, so that we cry that intimate term, Abba. In that moment, it's us too. Here's God's word for you tonight. This is what the Father says to you. You are my son, you are my daughter, in you I am well placed, because you are in the son. You are my son, you are my daughter, in you I am well placed, because you are in the son. You are in the son. That was the first point, and don't worry, that's the longest one. (laughs) The second point is this, that our father provides generously. And um, Jesus goes on to say a little bit later that um, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, well, how much more will your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask for him? And you think, well, thanks, Jesus, for calling us all evil. But he's, he's kind of picked up on something more in the human race than perhaps we realize. And he's contrasting the goodness of God. He says, how much more will God give good things to those who ask him? Psalm 84 says that no good thing does he withhold. Do you know, this is one thing that I love, uh, that I long to be growing in, is the expectation and the realization that God is a generous provider, that the Father provides generously. You see, this is the key, or one of the keys, in seeing more people healed when we pray for them. That when we lay our hands on and we command healing in Jesus' name, that we, that we have the realization that our Father provides generously. And that he is not only able, but he is also willing. He is willing because he's a generous provider because he's so, so good. I would encourage anyone here that wants to grow in understanding the goodness of God to do a study of Luke chapter 15. It's another account of Jesus' life. It's a story about a guy who had two sons, one of whom ran off and disgraced him, one of whom decided that he would play only by the rules. And the story tells of an incredibly lavish father who continues to bless his children, even though neither of them quite get it right. But do you know the ultimate fulfillment of all of this? Is is Christ himself. Is Christ himself. How do we know that the Father is a generous provider? Because he sent Jesus on our behalf. You see, we were in a mess and he came to save us. We were enslaved and he came to redeem us. We were under the curse of the law and he came and he fulfilled the law. We were under the power of death and he raised us to life. We didn't know where to turn and he came and he showed us the way. We didn't even know what God was like and he made him known. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this. He shows that God the Father is a generous provider. And when you see him, you just begin to appreciate how good he is and the child he's made you to be and the precious gospel that we've been entrusted with. The difficulty sometimes is that sometimes we live with the expectation of servants rather than sons, sons and daughters. Sometimes we think, oh, well, you know, God's like our master and I've really got to sort of approach him only on special occasions with sort of big requests because I don't want to go too often because it's, it's not my right, it's not my position. That's the expectation of a servant. That's not what a son says. 
I want to illustrate this with another example, which uh, I don't know if this is an all right thing to admit or not, but um, my wife and I watched Downton Abbey. There you go, admitted, there you go. And um, it's another thing that we've mutually agreed on. And uh, in, in Downton Abbey, there is a big distinction between the servants and the sons. And the servants will only ask things of the family on odd occasions that are big, you know, big deal or whatever. Whereas the family know that they have the whole family resources at their disposal. And uh, the, there's a story in, in one of the episodes where one of the servants, a guy called uh, Tom Branson, who is somewhere on there, uh, yes, just, uh, he's in the middle of there somewhere. You don't need to know who he is. You can Google him. It'll take too much time to describe him. He's a servant. He's a chauffeur, and he very much has to know his place and knows his limits. But actually, as time goes on, he gets friendlier and friendlier with one of the daughters of the family, Lady Sybil Crawley. And eventually, through one act of marriage, his status changes. He stops being a servant, and he starts being a son, a son-in-law. And suddenly, the whole family resources are at his disposal. Suddenly, his position is clear. Suddenly, he can go to the father of the family with absolutely anything and know that the father longs to give him things. The father has called us sons. We're no longer servants. We don't have to approach him on the odd occasion or only with big things. But actually, we have all the resources of heaven at our disposal. The third thing is this. God the Father rules authoritatively. He rules authoritatively. He's our Father in heaven. And the idea of saying our Father in heaven is that he's seated high above. He's in a position of authority. Now recently I was uh, watching some X Factor auditions, uh, just for a few minutes, and um, (laughs) appearing onto the screen came these guys. Pretty Boy Karma. There you go. They were as bad as they look. And um, they did their thing. And Louis Walsh said that they made Jedward sound like Simon and Garfunkel. And uh, so they went through. Are they going to go through to the next round? Louis, no. Sharon, no. Nicole, no. Simon. And Simon Cowell goes, thanks so much for coming. It's four yeses. And everyone kind of looked around like, what? What? And then there was a big thing about, oh, no, I meant to say no. Really sorry. And, um, but the reason why it was a deal, that's not my impression of Simon Cowell or the others. I can't do an Irish accent, and I won't try Sharon Osbourne. Um, the reason why it was a deal is because Simon Cowell owns the show. Simon Cowell runs the show. And as much as there are four judges there, Simon Cowell is in the position of authority of those judges. And if he really wanted those guys through to the next rounds, he could get them through. You see, our father runs the show. He created the show. He sustains the show. He created all things. In him, all things hold together. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's the judge of all. He's the one to whom we will have to give account. And that means that he gets to call the shots. He's the ruler. He gets to call the shots. And he does it in a way that is so beautiful, wonderful, and gentle. And that is so good for us. 
But you know, in his position as ruler, he's no puppet politician. He's not in the position without the authority to actually carrying everything out. He can do anything. And I mean anything. Our Father genuinely can do all things. Our Father is utterly in control. In fact, the book of Job in the Bible pictures the enemy having to knock on his door to seek permission to even harm one of the Father's children. And that means that your Father in heaven can do anything. That means when you approach him in the light of him delighting intimately with, uh, in you and providing generously for you, he can carry out anything. He calls the shots and he can do it all. And that leads to reverence. That leads to us to say, wow, you're in control and you can do all things. And that's why the next line of the prayer says, hallowed be your name. I've got a, a footnote in my Bible that says that, that can be translated, let your name be kept holy or let your name be treated with reverence. Wow, our Father. Do you know what the amazing thing is? That he rules authoritatively without compromising on anything that we've spoken of already. He's the ultimate ruler, yet he still delights in you intimately. He's the ultimate ruler with authority, yet he still provides for you generously. And if you want to know what he's like, then look at Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of his being. Let's invite the band up. I just want to finish with this. Over the summer, I read a book, and it's by a lady called Bilkis Shake, and um, the book looks like this. And um, as you can see, it's called I Dared to Call Him Father. And it's about a Muslim woman who encountered God, encountered Jesus in a really powerful way. And she tells her story as she slowly begun to understand that he is the one true God. And there was a key moment in her story where someone who went on to become a, a dear Christian friend to her said this. She said, why don't you pray to him as father? And I want to leave you with that question tonight. In light of all we've said, that he delights intimately in you, that he provides generously for you, and that he rules authoritatively over all things. I want to leave you with the question, why don't you pray to him as father? It might be the first time you've done that. It might be that that was something that you've struggled to do previously. Or it might be that your expectations have just been lifted tonight. So that as you pray to him as father, that term suddenly has so much more. He's so, so good. Why don't we stand together and we're just going to sing to him and then we'll see what he wants to do.